we're going to get into this week's Torah portion is a double portion, Tazria and Metzorah. And for those who don't know, the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. They're divided into 54 weekly sections that we call the Parsha, or the portion. And this goes back for thousands of years. We followed this ancient biblical reading cycle, as did Yeshua. And we find ourselves in the 27th portion of 54. So we're about halfway. And this lands us in Leviticus chapter 12. And in synagogues all around the world, and some churches all around the world, this Torah portion is being read and studied this week. And um, if you want to turn with me to Leviticus chapter 12, we're going to read a little bit. We're going to read all of chapter 12 and half of 13, and then we're going to talk about what we just covered. Before I do, though, I'd like to talk about some Parsha vocabulary. I'd like to teach you the language of Scripture, and then let's weave these words into the reading and see if we can through the context of our reading today, kind of derive the meaning of these words up here. The first of them is sara'at, and this is, um, you know, the, the word mitzrayim, or Egypt, same root as this word. Also, the word for a hornet or a wasp, which if you know me, wasps hate me and I hate wasps, but they're called sarah, they're troubles or, or afflictions. <laughs> Metzora is another word we're going to look at. The word tameh, the word tahar, and the word ra. We're also going to look at the word lashon and the word lashon hara, where all these words mean. I gave you the bottom two. How one moves their tongue literally is how to translate lashon. And then lashon hara is someone who moves their tongue in an evil way. Hmm. But let's look at Le Leviticus 12. Here's our questions I want to answer as we read Leviticus 12 and part of 13. Can you name a woman in the Brit Harashah who went through the postpartum cleansing ritual? Is Tameh the same as sinful? Who in Leviticus 13 serves as a medical examiner? And how many days must a person wait outside the camp? And what is the purpose of their quarantine? You guys ready? Leviticus 12. So Adonai said to Moshe, tell the people of Israel, if a woman conceives and she gives birth to a boy, she will be Tameh for seven days with the, with the same uncleanness as in Nidah, when she's having her menstrual period that Jose read. On the eighth day, the baby's foreskin is to be circumcised. She is to wait an additional 33 days to be purified from her blood, and she is not to touch any holy thing or come into, into the sanctuary until the time of her purification is over. But if she gives birth to a girl, she will be unclean. She'll be Tameh for two weeks as in her nidah, and she is to wait another 66 days to be purified from her blood. When the days of her purification, of purification are over, whether for a son or for a daughter, she is to bring a lamb in its first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering to the entrance of the tent of meeting to the priest, to the Kohen. He will offer it before Adonai and make atonement for her, and thus she will be tahor from her discharge of blood. Such is the law for a woman who gives birth, whether a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to take two doves, or I'm sorry, yeah, two doves or two young pigeons, the one for the burnt offering and the other for the sin offering. The Kohen will make atonement for her, and she will be tahor. She will be pure again. So let's answer our first question. Can you name a woman who went through this ritual? Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, did, right? Look at uh, Luke 2 if you, if you want some more details on that. Now, which of the two options does she go with? Did she go with the lamb or did she go with the poor person option? She went with the birds, which means they were poor. They couldn't afford a lamb, which means they probably didn't get a big gift of gold, frankincense, and myrrh yet, right? That direct deposit didn't hit their account just yet, did it not? So that whole story is just, I don't know painted wrong in my mind in terms of these three visitors coming. It doesn't even say there's three visitors, it's just these visitors coming and offering these very expensive gifts that maybe happened much later in Yeshua's childhood. Okay. Is Tameh the same as sinful? Number two, is Tameh the same as sinful? No, it's not. Because, you know, it's, it's good, it's righteous to have children. It's holy to have children. So having children shouldn't make you sinful. It's just a state of ritual impurity. It means that you cannot go into the sanctuary and be in the presence, right? There's contamination that has happened. So it's not the same as sinful. Sometimes we treat it as the same as sinful. Okay, let's go to Leviticus 13. We'll read, um, I don't know, 
15 or 20 verses here. Adonai said to Moshe and Aaron, if someone develops on his skin a swelling, a scab, or a bright spot which could develop into the disease called sara'at, how many of your Bibles have leprosy? Raise your hand if you have leprosy. Okay, if you're okay with writing your Bible, cross it out. It's not leprosy. He is to be brought to Aharon, the Kohen, or to one of his sons who are the Kohanim. The Kohen is to examine the sore on his skin. If the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to go deep into the skin, it is Sara'at. And after examining him, the Kohen is to declare him Tameh. If the bright spot on the skin is white, but it doesn't appear to go deep into the skin, and its hair does not turn white, then the Kohen is to isolate him for seven days. On the seventh day, the Kohen is to examine him again, and if the sore appears as the same before and has not spread onto the skin, then the Kohen is to isolate him for seven more days. And on the seventh day, the Kohen is to examine him again. And if the sore has faded and hasn't spread on the skin, then the Kohen is to declare him tahor, pure. It is only a scab. So he is to wash his clothes and be tahor, be clean. But if the scab spreads further on the skin after he has been examined by the Kohen and declared clean, he is to let himself be examined yet again by the Kohen. The Kohen will examine him. And if he sees the scab has spread on his skin, then the Kohen will declare him tameh. It is sara'at. Okay? So who, according to number three up here, is the medical examiner? The priest, the Kohen, right? Does he heal him of his sara'at? No, he doesn't. He just tells him, you need to go outside the camp. All right, number four. How many days must a person wait outside the camp? Seven, initially, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the, at the minimum, right? And what is the purpose of the quarantine, do you think? Are you sure? Did it say that? It doesn't say that. We can assume that, but it doesn't say that. I got you. We assume, looking at this, oh, it must be a contagious illness, and we know about Hansen's disease, which involves you losing digits and limbs and stuff like that, because the, the word there used, lepra, is a generic skin ailment that is you know, not, not the same. People assume that it's Hansen's disease, but do you know that there are no skeletal remains that show evidence in the land of Israel that anyone suffered from Hansen's disease? They would be missing little digits and stuff here and there, but they're not. So we can assume that this disease that is prevalent here and is being talked about cannot be Hansen's disease. But is it contagious? Maybe. The ancient rabbis argue that Sara'at refers not to a bodily disease, but to a physical manifestation of a spiritual malaise. A punishment designed to show a malefactor that he must mend his ways. In other words, Sara'at is not so much a physical disease as a form of supernatural or divine discipline. Now remember, when we read the Bible, we're getting in a time machine, right? And we're going back, we have to put, in our, put on our ancient Israeli imaginations and read the Bible through that lens. Now, did Yeshua read the Bible through that lens? Yeah. Did his apostles, his disciples read it through that lens? Yeah. So we should do the same. So when we read these passages about Sarah, we should go with it and approach it with the understanding how these ancient rabbis are approaching it, that this is a spiritual form of discipline on the person who has sara'at. And I'm going to back it up a little bit more here in a little bit. The sages argued that the inward cause of sara'at was sin, particularly anti-social sins, such as lying for selfish gain, sexual immorality, making a false oath that you cannot back up or you, you refuse to back up, pride, and especially slander. Yeshua is in agreement with these rabbis. He says things come out of the mouth, things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these will make you tameh, unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what make a man unclean. Hmm. In the Bible, whenever a reason is given for an attack of Sarah's, Anytime in the Bible, anytime you see someone with sara'at, it is connection, it is directly connected with a challenge to a duly constituted authority. Miriam, for instance, challenged the prophetic supremacy of Moses. Remember, she, she was like, who are you, you know, who, who these wives you, you took and everything? Gehazi disobeyed the will of his master Elisha, and Uzziah challenged the exclusive prerogative of the priests to offer the incense. And they all got sara'at. 
The Bible always attributes the healing of individuals to the intervention of prophets. The priest himself doesn't heal, like we established earlier. He only rules on the purity or impure status of the sufferer, the metzora, as he's called. But the priest offers no remedy other than to isolate them, to get them out of the camp. So a metzora is someone who has sara'at. Okay? So if I have sara'at, I'm a metzora. But homiletically, linguistically, interpreting the word metzora as connected with motzi shem ra, one who is spe a speaker of slander. They regarded leprosy primarily as a divine punishment for this evil, and an interpretation which receives historical support by the punishment of Miriam for her slander of Moses, and the rabbis add that Aaron suffered the same punishment for the same reason, among other sins which bring leprosy as retribution are the shedding of blood, taking oaths in vain, incest, arrogance, robbery, and envy, as well as attempting to gain benefit with sacred objects. Interesting, no? So this kind of paint a different picture of what Sara'at is for you already, and who gets it, why they get it, how they get healed. Rabbi John, Jonathan and Resh Lakish stated that it is forbidden to walk four cubits or 100 cubits, dependent upon whether there is a wind blowing at the time. This is from the Talmud and how they how they would have addressed a leper. We could say Metzora, right? Um, Rabbi Meir refrained from eating eggs, which came from a district where the lepers lived. Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi never entered such a district. They would just stay away from it. When Resh Lakish saw one, he would cast stones at him, exclaiming, get back to your location and do not contaminate other people. And Rabbi Eliezer ben Simeon would hide from them. So this kind of paints a picture of the level of ostracizing that they would employ for people who had Sara'at. You don't even go within 100 cubits of these people, okay? There was a high level of, uh, I don't know, ostracizing of the, those with, with sara'at. An aspect of the disease and punishment is that the metzora, the guy who, or the, the woman who has sara'at, must publicly and loudly declare, unclean, unclean, right? And they must cover their lip with something, maybe like a veil or something like that. Cover their mat, yeah. The Targum Onkelos, which is an ancient uh, Aramaic translation of the Torah, says that he covers his mouth like a mourner or someone who is dying. Proverbs 8.21 agrees, Proverbs 8.21 agrees with this. The tongue has the power of life and death, does it not? So let's talk about the cleansing ritual now. Let's get on the other side of this. The prescribed ritual for healed, for the healed, remember he, he has to be healed. Right? You can't just get over Sarah on his own. Every time there's Sarah on the Bible, there's some kind of divine healing that has happened. So the prescribed ritual for the healed consisted of three separate ceremonies, which would take place on the first and the eighth days. The first ritual is performed by the priest outside the camp or the city from which the leper has been banished. Cedar wood, crimson cloth, and a live bird are dipped into an earthen vessel containing a mixture of fresh water and the blood of a second bird. The leper, or the metzora, is sprinkled with this mixture seven times, after which the live bird is set free. The leper is admitted back into the camp or the city after he washes his clothes, he shaves all his hair, and he bathes, but he is not allowed to enter his residence. That is permitted him on the seventh day after shaving, laundering, and bathing again. So if you get sarahat, that's a mess, right? There's a big mess that we gotta unwind. You got yourself in a, a lot of hoops that you got to jump through now to get back and restored back into the camp. And it's a lot of work. On the eighth day, he brings to the sanctuary oil and sheep for various offerings, whole meal purification and reparation. The whole and purification animals may be commuted to birds if the leper is poor. However, the reparation lamb and the log of oil may not be changed because the blood of the lamb and the oil are needed to daub the leper's right ear and lobe and right thumb, the right big toe. This sin offering was to be offered to atone for the sin that may have caused the sara'at. And that's, that's one of the reasons why the sages say that sara'at comes from sinful activity or sinful speech. Because they have to bring a sinful offering to atone for some kind of sin on the other side of it. So, the laws of leprosy are given in great detail in the Talmud. All right? 
and a whole tractate of the Mishnah and Tosefta Negaim. Nega means to inflict something, like the plagues that um, came on Egypt. Those are those are called Negaim, afflictions, like whippings. So in the tractate of this portion of, of the Talmud, Negaim, you can find how we go about interacting with those who have Sara'at and how they go about getting cleansed. It is reported that in the courtyard of the temple itself, on the northwest, there was the chamber of the lepers, where the lepers remained after they had been cured and where they bathed on the eighth day of their purification, awaiting their admittance for the anointing of their toes. <laughs> but here, here's a picture of the, the temple as it stood in Yeshua's time, and I pretend I'm shooting a laser up there. But um, let's see. If you come up to the temple, come from, from, the, from the east, and you walk into the beautiful gate, and then you come in, to the left, immediately to the left, is the chamber of the Nazarites. And you keep going into the women's courtyard, and you go right up to the Nicanor gate. You see that little golden gate in there? If you, if you stop at that Nicanor gate, and you go 90 degrees to the right, do you see that chamber, that little square in the corner? Oh, I wish I had my laser pointer. That's the chamber of the Metzorah, those who have been afflicted with leprosy. So it's interesting, the sages actually point out that the, the chamber of the lepers is directly opposite the chamber of the Nazarites. Why? Because one is set apart for slander and one is set apart for his devotion to the Torah. But they're opposite each other in that courtyard. One is separated from the camp, so to speak, for good reasons. The other one separated from camp for bad reasons. But that's where he would go. He would present himself to the priest and say, I think I got something going on. I think I got a rash. <laughs> right? And he would say, I think it's, it might be something serious. He would be examined there. And then the, the you know, the, or, no, I, I think I got that wrong. He would actually go to his residence and examine it there. But then when he's cured of that, he would go to that, that court of the chamber of the lepers, and that's where he would do his mikvah, his ritual immersion and everything. Now there's a story, I don't have this in the notes or anything, but there's a story, uh, a rabbinic legend that, that says, goes like the following. When, you know, remember in ancient Israeli mindset, the, the infliction, Sarah, is caused by slander. So when the Israelites are going into the land of Canaan and they're inhabiting the homes of the Canaanites, the Canaanites knew that the Israelites were coming. And the Canaanites would take all their valuables and they would carve out a hole in the wall and they would plaster over it, hoping that one day they would come back to their home and re-inhabit their homes. Well, it didn't work out that way. And so these Israelites would walk into these cities that were pre-built by the Canaanites who were driven out or ran for, out of fear of the Israelites. And so they would started just taking up residence in these homes. And the story goes that as people began to speak sara'at, or I'm sorry, as people began to speak slander, the sara'at would show up on the walls of their home. And actually, in the Torah, it says that Sara'at can appear in your home, on your walls. And it can then appear on your clothing. And then it moves to your skin. But the sages say that some of the Israelis, as they're living in these homes, if they saw the Sara'at on the wall, ah, that's because I was slandering. It's now on my wall. I know that it will go to my clothing and it will go to my skin. If they caught it early and they called the priest in, and the priest examined it and said, yeah, you just need to remove that that." portion of your wall there and replace it. It hasn't traveled too far. What they started doing is uncovering these treasures in the walls and finding all these rubies and you know gold and all this other stuff. I don't know what they found. But, you know, like old Nintendo um, games and stuff. And no, I'm just kidding. But they, they started finding all these things. And so I don't think that's supposed to be literal. But I think what they're saying is that there's a reward. There's a spiritual, spiritual lesson there. That there's a reward for people who stop slandering and they see the consequences of their decisions and they repent early before it's too late. Make sense? And then there's a reward for early repentance. Whereas if you just let it go, your entire home has to be torn down, your clothes have to be burned, and then you gotta go outside the camp is how it progresses. Make sense? But when you do recover, you go up to the chamber of the lepers. The Bible gives accounts of Yeshua healing 11 lepers total that we know of. And I say lepers, but you get what I'm saying. It's a metzora. Uh, he healed one man who sought him out, and then 10 at one time. He may have healed more than this, right? But they were not recorded. Now, remember when there's 10, and one comes back and thanks him, and the other don't? Remember when he healed a leper one time, and he said, Now go and show yourself to the priest that you've been cleansed, right? 
This is where he would have gone, up there in the court of the lepers. And he would have been like, I'm healed. But remember what I said, only a great prophet can heal someone that has sara'at. So when he's standing there, he's waiting around the court of lepers, which is probably very infrequently used, first of all. He's standing there, and he's like, I'm waiting for somebody, you know, like me at Walmart. I'm like, waiting for somebody to help me here. But, you know, the priest would have been like, what are you doing? You're in the court of lepers. I know, I've been healed. I have, I have sara'at, I've been healed. No, 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 you could, there, only a great prophet can heal you of sara'at, right? And they'd be like, well, I don't know what to tell you. He healed, there's a guy walking in the countryside, he healed me, I'm here, I want to be cleansed. That would have been an immediate red flag. Okay, there is someone who is a serious candidate to be the Messiah out there in the countryside doing the things that only the Messiah was supposed to be able to do. And that's when we see the things start to get a little bit more interesting for Yeshua and the religious leaders down from, uh, from Jerusalem start going out to the countryside and, and kind of examining him out there in the countryside a little bit. Because they realize this man's something, we've got to figure him out. So, oh, remember when Yeshua says, don't go and tell anyone that I've healed you? Remember that? Does the guy obey that? He doesn't. Which is interesting to me because how did he get Sara'at, according to their understanding? By, by not controlling his tongue. And here he gets healed from Sara'at. And what does he do? He goes and runs his mouth. <laughs> it's like he didn't learn his lesson or something. In the two instances in which Yeshua is said to have cured lepers... He told them, go show yourself to the priest. And after their cure, in one passage adds, and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commands. This is evidence that the biblical laws were in operation, right? In other words, Yeshua says, hey, don't worry about all that temple stuff. Don't worry about bringing an animal on the altar. You know, I'm about to nail it to the cross here in a little bit, right? I'm about to abolish all of that, even though in the Sermon on the Mount I said I wouldn't abolish all that. No, he says, go and do what Moses commanded. Go and do what the Torah says. So, Lashan Hara is the speaking of, of Ra, the speaking of slander. So we got what a, a Lashon is, a, a tongue, a, a pattern of speech, right? When it talks about um, in the Tower of Babel in Genesis, when all the people were together, they were of one Lashon. They were of one speech, a pattern of communication. Oh, and do you know the words for your lip is the same words for a riverbank? Why? In Hebrew, the same word for your lips, so the same words for the banks of a river. Remember, uh, Adrian and I were kayaking out on the Choctahatchee one time, and we'd spent the night on the river that night, and we woke up the next day. We were um, paddling downstream, and there was this big storm about to come across, and we were looking at it on the radar on our phones. And the water was up kind of high already. And we were thinking, you know, there's a bridge a mile downstream. We could get extracted there. Or we could continue on and sleep through the storm and paddle through the storm and get struck by lightning. But then the kind of the tipping point for us is like, well, we don't know what this river is going to look like after the storm. It's moving pretty good right now. It's probably going to rise above its banks. And it's probably going to cover any ground that we have to camp on. I had, a little, had Eli with me, and I was worried about him. And... You know, I just didn't want to be in a situation. So we're just like, let's just go to the bridge and let's just get, get pulled out of the bridge there. And we did. But sometimes water overflows the banks of the river, right? A river is wonderful to live on, is it not? It is beautiful. It's serene. And until you get about three inches of rain in a week or something like that. And then what happens? You know, Stacy's grandmother um, used to live on a creek. And this creek was just a real small creek. It was like really innocent. You know, we go out there and we we play. We played there last weekend, you know. And it's just a real shallow creek, about two feet deep. But man, down in Florida, you can get some monsoons in Central Florida, where her grandmother is, and and that water would just rise up rapidly, just overnight, to the point that her grandmother would have to take all all their belongings and move them upstairs. And they even had these little special flood doors that would go across her downstairs. And there would be the the creek looked like a river, just flowing in her house was an island in the middle of this water and the water is flowing all around her house and she's just, we, had, we would have to take a canoe to her house to go down her driveway in a canoe and get to her house and, um, but yeah, so it's really nice to live next to a body of water that's flowing like that until it overflows its banks now it's really nice to be near someone who talks a lot or talks kindly to people until there's, they, they overflow their banks and they become destructive in their speech, right? And they're like, oh, no, I can't. That's toxic. I can't be around you. Right? So it's, the, I always say, like, you know, Lord, teach me to be quiet. 
Because the more I talk, the higher propensity there is for me to say something that I shouldn't say. Right? I want to be like Seth. Seth just like, he just like is quiet. He just observes. And when he says something, everybody listens because he's like, he's going to say something that's like mind-blowing. I want to be like, you know, I'm just like, I want to be quiet. Right? I want to say less and make it more meaningful. But what are some similarities? Let's do a little comparative analysis here. What are some similarities between gossip and evil speech and leprosy? Or what we could call sara'at. You guys have any? It spreads. It's contagious. Yeah. Yeah. So have you ever been in a room with people and they're slandering somebody? Ooh. And you kind of feel that pressure? Uh, I know what you're saying. Yeah, they did that to me too. Right? Or yeah, they, what they were wearing was a little bit funky. <laughs> Now, I teach high school, and the kids, it's funny, like, as soon as I get done teaching and they have, like, 10 minutes or 5 minutes of class left and there's nothing to do, they think, for some reason, I just turn my hearing off. Or maybe they're just that, that old and they're, and, they're, and they're slander. But, man, to hear them talk, they can tear each other apart. It's amazing. But I can do the same thing. But it's contagious, isn't it? It's really contagious. You know the best way to beat that? When someone's slandering someone else? compliment them. It'll throw them for a loop. It's really fun, actually, to watch. Be like, you know, like if, like, Catherine comes to me and she's like, Jonathan just, I don't know, he just smells different today. He just smells, it's not his normal, like, brawny, like, Old Spice smell. I don't know. And I'd be like, wow, I kind of like that smell. I don't know, I think, I think he smells good today, you know. But it's just kind of, it throw, you know what I'm saying? But, you know, being funny. But apply that in a, in a real-life situation. Right? And see what happens. It's just fun to get a reaction. Just compliment them. But here's some. They are both highly contagious, like Karen pointed out. And they too. Yeah, they both create paranoia and mistrust within the camp. Right? Have you ever been at a family function with a, with a family or your family? And you don't know who's allied with who? Isn't that, isn't that frustrating? You're like sitting there and you're like, well, she said this five years ago about him. And now I'm getting close with him. I wonder if that's going to get her to talk about me. But I was talking about her, you know, this other person to her. And it just creates this, like, really complex web of alliances and mistrust and paranoia. Where you don't know who's going to pull a knife out and stab it in your back in the next minute, you know? Oh, I can't stand that. But that's what slander does. That's what leprosy does. They're both, gossip and sara'at, 100% fruitless and unproductive. 100%. There is never an instance where slandering someone, even if 100% true, is productive. Right? Now, there's a difference, I think, between bringing concerns to, some, to someone who it should concern. The difference is motive. Motive is everything. Because it's like, man, you know, Ted, he's... I, I love Ted. You know, I really want to... I, I want to stay connected to... You know, I want to stay friends with him. You know, he's like, he's like brother to me, but, you know, I just got to bring this to your attention. And, you know, I, but I, I don't, I don't want to cause any, anything weird between Ted and I. You know, that's different intention, isn't it? That's not slander. That's just concern. Now, slander is like this. I, I have no regard for Ted. I'm just going to just say what I want to say. And if I ever see Ted again, I don't care. That's, that's awful. That's not what we do as followers of Yeshua, Right? We rebuke that. They're both destructive by nature. They're both destructive. They're like a cell of, of cancer that gets in the body and it grows and it multiplies. If not handled correctly, both gossip, slander, Lashon Hara, and Sara'at have the potential to cripple an organization. Have you ever been in an environment like that? Maybe at your workplace or something and everybody hates the boss? Or what about this? Everybody slanders the president. Mm, I just heard some toes crunch. That can cripple an organization, right? Don't slander our leaders. Pray for them. Mm. They both require divine intervention and healing. I believe that a person who is a pattern of gossip and slander and Lashon Hara, I believe that they need a, a true miracle in their life 
that there's probably some great injustice that was done to them prior to that, and that's just their MO at that point. They don't know who to trust. They're always feeling insecure. You know, they always want to bring other people down to their supposed level. And that's, you know, I think that needs healing. I think the Lord needs to heal that person of that insecurity to where they stop slandering. And I really believe that about 90% of slandering comes from a place of insecurity in people's lives. They both necessitate a removal and an isolation from the camp. If you don't believe me, check out Titus 3.10. Warn a divisive person once, warn them again, and then have nothing to do with them. Cut them out. Mm. They both form their respective toxic colonies, do they not? People with Sarat, they got to congregate together out somewhere outside the camp, and they, they do life together in their own, like, pitiful existence out there in some little camp. And people who slander, they do the same thing. Oh, hey, you like to talk smack about people? Let me, let me hang around you. Let's talk smack together, right? It's like people want a smoke break at work. Let's, let's not do this alone. Let's smoke together, right? It just makes it better. Let's slander someone together. Oh, you dislike this person too? Let me ally with you and let's, let's double down and do the cowardly thing and talk about, their back, talk about them behind their back together. Both leave lasting scars. And those scars will shape your self-image and your future decisions. Your words, guys, I can remember sitting on a bus in sixth grade and having a kid, I remember his name. He would turn around every single day the moment I got on that bus and he would just sit there and he would just talk, 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 talk and just belittle me and bully me and just he would get other people to do the same thing. I mean, that, that has the potential to change someone's life for the rest of their life and create insecurity. Now, I mean, that, that guy was probably just ate up with insecurity. But be very careful. Life and death are in the power of your tongue. You don't want to inflict scars on people. You want to do the opposite. You want to bind up wounds, right? I'm going to leave you with some verses from the New Testament that talk about talk. <laughs> Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. James 1, 26-27. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he's deceiving his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled, you hear the language there, tamay, tahor, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself untainted from the world. In other words, well, I'll get into that in a second. Ecclesiastes 10, 12, the words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. Romans 14, 9, or 14, 19. So then, let us pursue what's chased after, what leads to peace and mutual edification. Sometimes we're quick to pursue division, aren't we? Colossians 3.8 But now you must put aside all such things Anger, rage, malice, slander And filthy language from your lips I always have students ask Is cursing a sin? Is cussing a sin? Like uh, I always make them write that about ten times Ephesians 5.4 Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or crude joking Which are out of character But rather Thanksgiving now, I'm going to confess, I grew up in a home where there was a lot of joking going on. My dad just constantly could make jokes, just constantly, constantly. And, and I, I grew up, that was my norm. And for 15 or so years now, I've been trying to unlearn that. That that's not normal. That's not, that's not everybody's normal. Some people it is. Some people, like, they, can, they can take that from me or something. But I've been trying, I've been working on and allowing the Lord to, to reveal in me and created me a pattern of speech that abides with this, Ephesians 5, 4. James 3, 6, the tongue is like a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body and sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and it is itself set on fire by hell. And here's kind of the, the crux of it. The Holy Spirit, or the Ruach HaKodesh in Hebrew, 
is continually in the business of trying to gather its people together. It's trying to gather and purify and refine the bride of Messiah. So the, the faith that we follow, it does this really hard thing. It, it tells us that we have to be together. Hebrews 10 says, don't forsake the assembling of one another together. Now, that's tough because we're all fallen. We're all sinful. And we all have this little muscle in our mouth called our tongue. And it gets us in a heap of trouble now. And I, I would say that the, the tongue stuff, you could read all those verses and apply it to a keyboard as well or a phone. And what you say on that phone or that keyboard. All right, that's just an extension of your tongue. But we, through our speech, we have the ability to undo the work of the Holy Spirit so quickly. So controlling our speech, and I think you guys would all agree that controlling our speech is a very foundational, elementary principle, right? You don't have to learn another language. You don't even have to celebrate any of the holy days. You don't have to keep Shabbat. You don't have to keep kosher. All this stuff that we, we do, you know, it's like, it's just, you just have to control your tongue. You just have to not talk bad about people. It's very foundational, right? Everybody agree that's pretty elementary? Would you? Okay, cool. But... If you notice here, when, the, when, you, when you put a foundation in for a house, you don't just like, okay, let's just pour a slab and just build a house on it. Right? That would be foolish. You dig down and you build footers and you remove a portion of the earth. And you kind of, you kind of fuse the earth with the foundation of that house, do you know? And it's not a very whimsical thing. It's, not, it's something that, you know, sometimes in our lives, we have to, like I just confess to you, I have to have elements of my pattern of speech kind of dug out and removed from me before I can really build a good house on top of that foundation. When we go to buy a house, however, it's easy to get swept up in the above grade beauty and charm. Anything above ground, we're like, oh, it's beautiful, I love it, I wanna buy it, I can see, you know, this is like, we can put the she shed back there, I can have my sewing room here, the kids will be up there, whatever. You know, we look at all these things and it's like, you know, it's a pretty house. But do we ever get like a magnifying glass out and look at the foundation of the house? You see, we do the same thing with our walk. We're like, you know, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to eat kosher. I want to wear tassels. I want to, you know, wear the prayer shawl. I want to blow the shofar. All that stuff. It's, it's fun stuff. It's good stuff. It's holy stuff. But I'm going to warn you: if you don't have the foundational aspects of our faith down, if you build a house on a foundation that is faulty at its core, you got to start over from scratch. That house is going to crumble, is it not? That house is doomed to fail. Have I ever seen that before? I have. And it is bad. It's messy. I have this thing called the thumper principle. You remember from the movie Bambi? Remember, anybody watch it on VHS, right? In a, in a, yeah. Like 1991 or something like that. I remember sitting there, you know, watching Bambi. Right? We ate Bambi the other night at Jose's house. But yeah, Bambi's mom gets shot. Spoiled story, I'm sorry. Some of you guys really were looking forward to watching it. But I have the Bambi, the thumper principle, right? Thumper's the little rabbit, and he's like, my mom says it can't say nothing, don't say nothing, right? Pretty elementary principle, correct? Well, here, here's what sometimes people do when they come to me, and they come to, to DMF or something like that, and they, they, they hang out here. Gabe, hey, why don't you teach us the deep? hidden mysteries of the Hebrew language. We want, we want to go deep, right? We want to go deep, right? It's like, as if I know all the deep hidden mysteries of the Hebrew language, first of all. I'm like, oh, all the uh, gimel, right? Well, here, here's what I say in response to that. Man, I'm sorry, like, I'm still on, like, the bumper principle. I'm still trying to learn how to bite on my tongue. That's how, that's how fallen gay rubbish is. I would love to take you deep and like show you all of that in the text and show you how all these things, you know, it's like, I would love that. But let's figure out if we got this like, thumper thing down, right? Or people will be like, hey, where do you think the Ark of Covenant is located? Do you think it'll ever be found again? And I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm still like on thumper stuff, right? I'm still trying to figure out like the rabbit was saying in Bambi. I'm trying to figure out how to apply it to my life. I don't care about the Ark of the Covenant right now. I'm trying to figure out how not to commit Lashon Hara. And I struggle with that. 
And I'd go on a, a very strong limb and, and, and submit that you probably do as well because you're a human like me. Or people will be like, hey, what do you think about the solar eclipse lining up with the lunar equinox, lining up with the first day of Passover, which is lining up with the post visit Jerusalem? <laughs> I'm still going back to like Bambi, you know, and trying to learn Thumper. And I struggle with that. And I'm going I'm to guess that you do as well. You know, we, we idolize knowledge and revelation in our movement. We idolize it. That becomes our currency. Was it Yeshua's? No. What was his currency? Getting down and washing people's feet. Going out to the leper and healing him. Going to tax collectors' homes and dining with them. Zacchaeus, get down here. I'm going to your house tonight. Right? I would be the guy sitting and be like, whoa, whoa. He, he's not a great rabbi. He has no idea. This guy's been skimming stuff off the top for years now. <laughs> I'm going to go keep looking for the Messiah. That'd be me. What about this? Gabe, why does this person still go to Sunday churches to teach and share the gospel to those who are lost? I've heard that time and time again. You have no idea. Okay, what do you think about this Facebook post I made in which I question 90% of Christianity is salvation because they don't fill in the blank? You know what I'm going to say to you? Watch Bambi. It's <laughs> a really good quote in there where there's a rabbit, he talks. And he says, if you can't say something nice, don't say it at all. Right? It's, a, it's a rabbit. It's a, just a, it's a cartoon. I saw it when I was like in second grade. Right? I know we laugh and stuff, and it's funny, but like, it's true. If your Torah observance puts you in a place of increased pride and superiority to those around you, your foundation is cracked, and you need to start over. If your Torah observance should lead you to a position your Torah observance should lead you to a position of increased servitude and humility. And in all, that an all-powerful creator is letting you live, knowing what's in your heart. In spite of all your lawlessness. So how dare we use a sacred object, such as his word, to elevate ourselves in a sense of pride. And slander people around us. Hmm. Let's close in prayer, and I'll take time for Q&A. Father in heaven, may you work on Gabe Rutledge. And Father, I just confess before all these people that I am fallen, and I am nothing without your grace. And I'm a mess when it comes to my speech. May you heal that in me. And may every time I say something that is unprofitable, or slanderous, may you convict me. May you drive me back to your word. Father, I pray for the messianic movement at large, a movement that prides itself in obedience to your word. Heal us in our pride. Give us hearts of humility and servitude. Give us hearts that are willing to lay our lives down even for the most wicked and corrupt around us. Give us the ability to say, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Father, you are good and you are gracious and merciful. And we invoke your mercy right now. Please have mercy on me, I am a sinner. Give me the strength to lead and to talk in the way that you would have me to talk. That I can share the precepts of your kingdom with those around me. That I can speak life and I can speak blessing. I can speak liberty to the captive. 
that I can lift up and not bring down, that I can bring order and not chaos. I thank you and praise you for everyone in this room today. Those who are not with us, may you watch over them and protect them. We pray all these things in the matchless and beautiful name of our Savior, Yeshua, the Prince of Peace. Amen. Well, guys, if you have any questions or thoughts or reflections, I'd like to give you a few minutes. Um, we do Kiddush at the end of our service, which is a time of like, oh, everybody jumped up there. <laughs> okay. I must have offended them. <laughs> did Adrian do a good job last week or what? Yes. He did. And you know, I want to say thank you to, to those who were here and, and kind of did some of the stuff that I did. Oh, thank you. Oh, okay. All right, we'll just, cool. So uh, I, we went down to South Florida and spent a wonderful time in South Florida visiting family down there. And uh, it's just been one of those weeks ever since then. You guys ever had a week where you're just like, you can't catch your breath? You can't sit down long enough to catch your breath? I'm still living out of a suitcase. I, was, I pulled these clothes out of a suitcase I took to South Florida with me last week been that kind of a week, but praise God I'm here, and uh, thank you guys for giving us the grace to be able to go and do that, but Greg, I saw your hand up. Long story is we don't know, and what, I'll tell you how Judaism looks at it. Judaism says that the infliction of the, the disease Sara'at was connected with the potential that, to have the Shekinah in our midst. And that when there is no tabernacle or no temple, Sara'at goes away. So that's kind of how it's treated and how it's looked at there. So where there's an opportunity to go into the presence, Sara'at is there. But if there isn't, then it's not there. Makes sense? So it's connected with that aspect. But so I don't know. I don't know if that's right. Um, but we don't know with 100% certainty what Sara'at was. I mean, it could have just be poison ivy. I don't know. But it seems to be far more severe than that. Not Hansen's disease. No, definitely not Hansen's disease. Yeah. All biblical scholarship is in agreement that it wasn't Hansen's disease like we see with limbs falling off and stuff. Yeah. Good question. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that is kind of a paradox. Like, why is it? Why are we told to be fruitful, and multiply, but then have to have a, bring a sin offering if you're tamay for being obedient to a commandment? And the best explanation I can give you in that is, and someone could chime in too if you think you have a better answer, um, is that uh, it has to do with the contamination of blood, but um, but also the the idea that. Um, uh, Connected to Eve's sin in the garden. That after, I mean, one of the curses, one of the, I shouldn't say a curse, but one of the the punishments of Eve's sin was that she would bear child, a child in pain. And that women from that point forward would bear children in pain. That may be connected to that. Um, so yeah, that's, long story short, I don't know exactly why it's called a sin offering. If she didn't sin, she's doing something that's obedient. Um, but the best I can come up with is that she came in contact with um, blood, and that blood has to be atoned for somehow. It's kind of like nida, like menstrual cycle, like, or, you know, like if you touch a dead body, you're unclean, um, but it's like you came in contact with death. The wages of sin are death, and because you came in contact with that, and the wages of sin, you have to bring a sin offering. But I don't know if that's the best answer, but Jonathan, I saw your hand up. Maybe you can this question earlier this week, and I've actually answered it twice, the, and I think this is Jonathan's answer, is that it's a classification, much less a what you're giving it for. For example, at the end of the period of being a Nazarite, you also bring a sin offering. But sure, yeah. the Nazarite vow, the whole process of being a Nazarite should be like, I'm living a life of way above <coughs> sin. Like, I'm excluding myself from alcohol and all these other things you were in a, in a case of extreme purity, ritual purity. So there's – my answer was that it's just a classification 
of sacrifice you should give because each classification requires you to bring different things. So not so much a sin sacrifice. If you sin, bring me a sin sacrifice, but I want you to bring this, these elements of this particular order of sacrifice to me after this period. Hmm. Does that make sense? It's more of a classification of sacrifice than it is recompense for doing something wrong. It's an interesting way of looking at it. Howard? Yes, I, I think uh, it, it's probably better understood if we call it a purification offering. Yeah. Uh, and a lot, of, a lot of people refer to it yeah. as a purification, not as a sin offering. Yeah, perhaps, yeah. Looking at it more of a purification offering than a sin offering is what he said. So, yeah. Jose, I saw it. was just talking about purification. Yeah. Uh, Jim, did you have a hand up? Okay, Jose. Now, the place where you brought that offering is the same, uh, it's the same place for both purification and sin. Mm. So the Creator God brings people to His house to draw them near to Him. Mm. Notwithstanding, if I if I were to set that corner for the sin and that corner for the purification, yeah. whoever is coming over here is going to cost the rest of the yeah, it gives you a degree of anonymity. The Creator God draws near His people, bringing the purification and the sin offering in the same manner, in the same spot, and, and it's all between Him yeah. and the Creator. And, um, yeah, that's a good point. So it gives you anonymity as you're bringing the offering. Um, the other thing, too, I just popped for this Torah portion. Is this, well, there's one passage that says, there's some rabbi, I can't remember who it was. He said, when you hear the Metzorah saying, unclean, unclean, you should not hear unclean, unclean. You should hear, pray for me, pray for me. That he would be brought to a, a repentance. That was interesting. Uh, yeah, okay. I know, I know Stacy was, was definitely slandering me to my face when, when I went back to work two days after Micah was born. Was it two days? I think it was two days. That was a mistake. Don't do that. Looking at Jonathan. You, get, you be there for as long as she needs you. All right. Anything else? Yeah, Joanne. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Yeah, born in sin. Maybe she's bringing atonement for the child that's being born. Perhaps. Perhaps. Interesting way of looking at it. Anybody else? Yeah, Jim. I just thought it was interesting as I was reading some of the rabbinical literature that there is a, there's something, I'm not sure what's going on, but it sure is interesting that um, they tie the two birds with the two uh, sin goes, uh, Azazel that goes out mm -hmm. and takes the sin away. And the bird, one of the birds flies away uh, with, with that sin to separate that sin from that person. Yeah. And what I think is interesting there is if you take this uh, uh, rabbinical idea of uh, equal weights, right? Yeah. Or show or parties. Uh, maybe, perhaps, we could see the two pigeons that Miriam brings as an indication that her son will also be the one who takes those sins far away. Hmm. Since one of those birds, I mean, it's just an idea. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting parallel between the scapegoat and the scapebird. Yeah. Maybe there's a connection there. Anybody else? Take a couple more comments and then we'll eat for... No, I yeah. I really appreciate your teaching and uh, you're very well gifted and God really bless you greatly we thought I was going to have to draw it up. Uh, what hurt me the most is uh, people in the same Christian faith would say bad things about other ones in the Christian faith. Yeah. And they would say, mm -hmm. well, you went baptized this way, uh, you're not going to heaven. And I thought, and I know that I was, you know, yeah. saved and I was baptized in the name of Father, Son, Holy Ghost and I've been baptized. 
the name of Jesus. And yeah. I even ask people, well, will you baptize me in the name of Yeshua? And haven't I? And before we even uh, got married, uh, we got baptized. I want to make sure it's all right. We've been together forever. In the name. <laughs> And yeah. God's been really good, but you're a great teacher. Oh, thank you, thank you. You are. Thank awesome. you. I, yes. Praise God. I, you know, I, I try best I can. Uh, it, it's it's interesting when people ask about you know were you, were you baptized the right way? Were you baptized in this name or that name? I always ask like, well, what about the guy on the cross next to Yeshua? How was he baptized? It's like you know, I, I don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, if they if they were had the opportunity, I'm sure he would have been immersed in the water. But that right there opens up the opportunity. Apparently, you just have to, you know, trust and believe and profess faith in Yeshua. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like I said, they will probably have been immersed if they had the opportunity. But yeah, good question. And thank you for your kind words. <laughs> yeah, Michael. Yeah. Yeah, I always say that before we immerse people. I say this is nothing magical about this water. This water is not washing away your sins. This is a outward outward action of something that should be inward. That's already done. You know? And you're just doing it publicly and saying, I'm now being I'm I'm making this public declaration. But exactly, there is nothing magical about that water. And actually the um what is it? The uh Didache. Didache, yeah, you read my mind. It uh it says if there's no water available, you dump sand over their head. Yeah, where there's no water. Can you imagine that? My kids do that every day out in the sandbox. <laughs> Any other questions? Let's take one more and then we're going to break for lunch. Good thoughts, good questions. No more questions. Preguntas. No? Okay, good. Let's say Kiddush and then we will break for our meal. And then Alexi will uh, come lead us in the Aaronic benediction. We're going to say the blessing over the fruit of the vine. And... Um, I'm the only one who wants it. I'm the only one with good juice. You ready? Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pari Agafen Amen Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Blessing over the bread as we break bread today. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Amen. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Um, I forgot to mention that at 2 o'clock today, up there in the loft with the big TV, uh, I'll be teaching Beginner's Hebrew and Fundamentals of the Faith, 2 o'clock. So um, everybody is welcome to attend, but eat some food first. All right. Gather around with your, uh, your family. His hand will be upon the people, and God will bless. He will definitely bless everyone of you. Amen. 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his shalom. Amen.